Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, this feels feels The moment you decide. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Always edit. (laughs) So, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, We're calling this the History of Christian... No, wait, A History of Christian Theology. Um, yes. And uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Greetings, podcast listeners. This is our last broadcast that will be uploaded before our live taping, which we will do on December 19th at 8 o'clock in Boise, Idaho at the District Coffee House. We hope to see you all there. In this week's episode, we will introduce a little bit more Tertullian, of Carthage, who we will be discussing in our live broadcast, speaking specifically about his doctrine of the Trinity. On this episode, however, we turn to his work called De Spectaculis, or On the Shows. To give you a little bit of a heads up, for the first eight minutes, we discuss a little bit about Tertullian's Montanism. Now, Montanism is a form of Christianity that developed in the second century under their founder, Montanus, in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. Montanism was later condemned as a heresy. However, its basic tenets were very similar to what will become orthodoxy, the difference being that the Montanists were extremely strict um, in their piety. Uh, They felt that there, there should be very specific rules about how a Christian should act, mostly about no remarriage, um, lots of fasting, and most importantly, however, they believed that the Holy Spirit had not stopped speaking through prophecy. There are many similarities between Montanism and modern-day Pentecostal movements. So we speak about Montanism for the first eight minutes. Uh, then later on, we will turn to his specific arguments um, about the shows. At, at around uh, ten minutes, uh, we talk about the pagan origins of the shows at around 22 minutes, we talk about the passions, um, and in, at about 30 minutes, I splice together two recordings because of their poor audio quality, so I'm sorry about that. And then the last third, uh, at about minute 39 or so till the end, we discuss movies, including American Sniper, and how Tertullian would respond to a movie like that. We hope you enjoy this episode. Please check out our event page at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology. Our event is located there. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I mean, I'll try to address when I introduce him the a little bit of the Montanism, although that isn't evident at all in what we've read. Um, it was in today's reading. Oh, what? Which one? Well, he talks about it was in the spectacle. Really, he talks about um, he talks about how what we should be given to is demon exorcism and prophecy and things like that, which are all. Very keenly Montanist. I mean, Montanism, its big thing is kind of like a um, kind of a charismatic gift. Gifts kind of. Yeah. Right. Well, I guess what I mean when I say it wasn't clear, like he doesn't quote Maximilla, Priscilla, or Montanus, um, or say oh, yeah. he, there are times when he actually says the new prophecy, yada, yada, yada. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, well, p- part of what we should at some point discuss, and maybe we can get to this even in the De Spectaculis on, on, you know, what he says about prophecy. 
the interesting thing to me, I, I have read every extant source that describes Montanism uh, for my class. I'm not at all convinced it's any different than evangelical Christianity, maybe specifically um, sort of more charismatic Christianity. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it, it seems to be a Pentecostal. It's almost identical with kind of like contemporary Pentecostal Christianity. Yeah, I mean, because it's it's actually there's a section in uh, I think it's in De Anima where he actually there's a woman who uh, prophesies. It's not Maximilla or Priscilla, but um, he actually says she waits till the end of the service and then talks with me about her prophecy. So it's not even clear that she's active in the service doing the pro- the prophecy. So it's not even like women in ministry exactly. Um, yeah. There's like even a special role, like, no, you kind of wait till the end for this. On what grounds specifically were the Montanists deemed heretical? Well, so the one thing that they look really bad on is there's this place in Asia Minor where they found what is the um, the Phrygian Montanist New Jerusalem, um, where they believe that Jesus was came back and was going to come back in the fifth century. And they also, they did have women deaconesses, maybe women presbyters. Um, and that was, you know, that and the addition of, so it's, Eusebius isn't exactly clear and Epiphanius is a little um, cagey about it as well in terms of a succession of prophecy. And so their their issue seems to be that there's not a clear succession. Um, where And so it, it sort of, evinces a view that maybe there was a real prophetic uh, succession, but nobody ever states what that is. That's their claim against them is basically they don't have the right um, succession of prophecy. And then their prediction for the new Jerusalem fails. Well, and also, I mean, just thinking about Montanism and my comparison a moment ago with uh, a lot of contemporary Pentecostalism, of course, there are a lot of different Pentecostal movements, so you can't like pinpoint one of them. Um, but there are a lot of movements that definitely allow women into roles that traditional conservative Pentecostals maybe wouldn't have. I mean, there are a lot of Pentecostal churches that have female prophets and female pastors. Um, it's actually kind of common in a lot of Pentecostal churches. So, I mean, when I read about Montanism, when I, it sounds very much like a contemporary Pentecostal movement basically. Um, And even not just that, and this would be kind of a good jumping point into the spectaculis, you know, Pentecostals traditionally are, uh, for lack of a better term, super pious in their practices. And what I mean by that is they tend to eschew or uh, to disallow, um, you know, they basically are very conservative in their practices. They don't allow a lot of you know, arts into their world. They're kind of, uh, they, they typically react against, um, you know, movies and pop music. There's there's a, a kind of a hyper emphasis away from that. That's largely because it's grows out of Wesleyanism, you know, and yeah. kind of the holiness movement and the idea that, that movies and pop music and all that kind of stuff is going to somehow basically corrupt you or make you dirty in a sense that if you're holy, you need to be different from that. So even in this work, uh, day spectacularly on the shows, uh, I mean, Tertullian just sounds like a modern Pentecostal. Yeah. It reminded me of like Wesleyan 
sanctification type doctrines where you really put the emphasis on that? Well, I don't know as much. I mean, I don't know. Again, we've talked about our, you know, kind of unfamiliarity with Wesley. I don't know to what degree in Wesleyan movements, like what holiness looks like in that sense. But I do have a much broader, broader exposure to Pentecostal and charismatic churches. And in Pentecostal and charismatic churches, for sure, holiness definitely means separation from the world. I have some Nazarene friends, and they've described to me the fact that they were inspired by that Wesleyan type teaching. And mm. so that it, so I guess that's all I have in my, like my image of Wesleyan holiness is the kind of, the kind of rules you get from like the Nazarene church, like no dancing and, mm-hmm. and whatnot, which. Yeah, I actually did. <laughs> I did a wedding once uh, for a couple, one of whom came from a Nazarene background. And as a part of my sermon, I actually talk about how a marriage hearkens to the coming um, marriage of Christ and his church. And, and I talk about how the marriage of Christ and his church is around a banquet and a feast, a wedding feast, and how it's a time of joy and celebration. And there will be eating and feasting, well, feasting and dancing. I said, and we will dance. And the bride whispers to me, Psst, no, no, we won't. <laughs> we will not be doing any dancing. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> so, yeah. So then kind of backtrack. <laughs> well, that, yeah. So that's a little bit of a, yeah. So we've been given a little bit, or we've been giving a little bit of an introduction to this, uh, to Tertullian, which we did his apology last week. Um, and so now we're talking a little bit about Montanism, which is not actually the term that they call, they call themselves the new prophets or the new prophecy. Um, and that was where, that's part of Tertullian's background. Um, it was condemned later um, as a heresy. Um, but it's not exactly clear a lot of forms of Christianity that we know today. Um, and, and so one of the things, yeah, they emphasized fasting. They emphasized no remarriage at all. Um, and they were, um, yeah, just very, the word, the word that I want to use is going to come up a lot. Um, and it's probably, it might be a new word for some people is ascetic. Um, and, and it comes from the Greek word for training. Um, and so the, the athletes would train very di- like and very arduous and hard ways. And so the same idea comes up and this will be, this will be part of the, the monastic movement. Um, but Tertullian is not a monk. Um, but he, he, in this day spectaculis on the shows that we're reading, um, you get a sense of of his rigor, um, the strictness that he brings to his faith. Um, so he outlaws, I mean, basically we could start, we could start with this. He just outlaws toot court, um, doing anything in public, going to wrestling events, going to, which I thought was funny for Tom. Um, because uh, I was a wrestler for, I wrestled in college and high school. Uh, outlaws going to the theater, uh, outlaws going to the circus, which is the races, outlaws going to the amphitheater where they would do either races or also, um, you know, uh, shows of killing uh, where they would kill. Um, he just basically says all of that, um, that is not the place of the Christian. So what we want to talk about, I think, or at least what I'd like to talk about in the Day Spectaculis is why. Um, so what is his reasoning for all of this? And maybe, you know, hopefully for us, we'll get to what that means for us, uh, as 21st century Christians, like what kind of principles, uh, can we draw out, um, from Tertullian about our own relationship to 
non-Christian forms of entertainment. Yeah, <clears throat> I think one of his arguments, which is actually pretty central and takes up a big portion of the work, um, which I do like the title of the work, The Shows. I mean, it, it, it actually really reeks of modernism, right? I mean, this idea of going to the show. Uh, I mean, as you read it, you just feel like he's haranguing against watching television and watching movies and watching Ultimate Fighting Championships, things things that our culture uh, indulges in, uh, but he does it in his own context. But his principal argument is that all of these practices, whether it be the theater, the circus, meaning the horse racing, or the gladiatorial combats or wrestling matches or whatever, they're all centered or all sprung up out of pagan worship or pagan rites. That essentially these started off as modes of worshiping pagan gods. And he essentially says, since it has its roots in paganism, you should have nothing to do with it, period. Uh, And on the one hand, that really doesn't apply in our modern situation because the movie theaters and television, they're not rooted in pagan worship. They're not rooted in the worshiping of a pagan god. Um, contemporary sports like wrestling or racing, you know, races or whatever, they're not, there is no religious affiliation or connection whatsoever, except through like this long connection that you might be able to draw uh, from the fact that it resembles theater from the third century Rome or something like that. Yeah, it would be like saying football is, um, you know, you know, there might be some weird, loose connection, but not not really. Not yeah. not a real connection, yeah. exactly. The one place where I find this interesting, though, the pagan argument, because I hear it all the time, is with a lot of contemporary worship practices in the church, like surrounding Christmas, most specifically. I have met a lot of people who've argued that Christians ought not celebrate Christmas because it has roots in pagan holidays. Um, meaning a lot of the practices that we observe, like a Christmas tree, the exchanging of gifts, a holly wreath, or things of that nature, are rooted. The date, the 25th. Um, Yeah, or even the date, yeah, because the date, having picked the 25th, is in fact basically, I mean, Constantine, when he chose December 25th as the day on which we are to celebrate Christ's birth, he does so on the one hand, uh, arbitrarily, there's no reason to think Jesus was born on December 25th. I mean, there's no indication in the text of, of you know, what time of the year it was. But Constantine kind of arbitrarily picks it, and he does so because two major pagan holidays were celebrated right around that time, one being the day of Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, and the other one being the Saturnalia, which was probably the favorite Roman holiday uh, at the time of Constantine's conversion. So he just co-ops those pagan holidays and says, let's just celebrate Jesus' birth on that day. So I know a lot of people who say, we shouldn't celebrate Christmas. We certainly shouldn't have Christmas trees or anything like that. And I, I find that more akin to Tertullian's first argument. Now, he gives others, which I think could apply to theater and so forth, but I find that more appropriate in that sense. Yeah, because there's essentially two reasons we shouldn't be at the shows as they're called, which that I gathered, which is that it'll essentially create passions within us that are negative to our spiritual health. And those might be, those could maybe have a contemporary uh, 
an analogous situation or something. But the other one is that it's always idolatry. Mm. And it's because of its pagan roots that you can't get around the fact that you're you're basically putting something before God as an idol. Um, which I found weird and not very strong of an argument. I don't know about you guys, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I was not overly compelled by it because even in the case of, um, well, like why we chose Saturnalia, even say Easter um, in the English language, we don't, I mean, in French and, and other Neo-Latin languages, they use Pach, which comes from Pesach, which is Hebrew for Passover. And, um, you know, there's even a Christian so, or, or Jewish origin for that. Um, but, you know, wait, whether, wait. wherever the, what's that? Say that again, because... You, were you talking about with Easter, with respect to Easter? Yeah. Okay, I got confused. I thought we're, sorry, I just lost you on that. So, Well, my, own, my only point was, I mean, yeah, we have some distant connection in our names of things to the gods, but nobody's worshiping or thinking about those gods. Um, so even in the case of uh, Constantine choosing the date, especially now, 1,700 years later, no one has any idea about that. Um, all everybody's thinking about is... I mean, maybe now it's become a little uh, secular. People aren't thinking about the baby Jesus, but I don't think they're thinking about worshiping um, a false god. Uh, no, for sure. I, you know, Tertullian, though, and I actually take it to be three different arguments he's taking, because I do take the grounding in paganism as a different complaint that he makes as opposed to idolatry. He, I think he levels the idolatry charge as a different kind of thing. He, he makes the argument that regardless of what your attitude is or your involvement or your, your feeling towards something, you ought never do anything that is rooted in paganism. Like, regardless of whether it's idolatrous or anything like that. The idolatrous charge seems to be slightly different, I think. Um, and so he is taking the exact same tack that people I've talked to take about Christmas and Easter um, or Halloween or things of that nature. These were started by pagans. They have pagan practices and anything with any remote connection should be disregarded. And, and I'd like to, Chad, just uncover one of your assumptions, which by the way, I agree with you 100%. So I'm not in disagreement with you, but this yeah. is the assumption that you make that these guys, the people who disagree with us would, would uh, take issue with. And that is you assume that the intent matters, right? You've assumed that since I don't intend anything pagan by putting up a Christmas tree in my in my house, um, that therefore I'm not doing something wrong. <clears throat> These guys would argue that it is intrinsically wrong. The right. tree itself is evil, and therefore you should not do it. And and he makes that argument at the beginning that the thing itself is evil because once upon a time you sacrificed to Bacchus when you were doing theater. Regardless of whether they ever sacrificed the Bacchus anymore or anything like that, which, by the way, Bacchus was the Roman god of wine and revelry, regardless, he would say, of whether they do that anymore, it's evil in and of itself. You should, the moment you make a choice to take part in that, you are, in essence, communing with these gods. You're, you're, you're implicitly agreeing to take part in these pagan rituals. And, and I, myself... I disagree with that line of thinking because, well, basically because of so much teaching in both the Old and New Testament on the fact that God's commandments, the purpose of them are to address the spirit of a matter and not the letter, right? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 
Paul talking about eating food sacrificed to idols. He says, don't do it. But he says, don't eat food sacrificed to idols only because it might make the person who's eating with you stumble. Like they might start to wonder why you're eating food sacrificed to idols and might grow bitter or angry towards you or think that you don't care about paganism or whatever. But he, in that passage, he makes the comment, he says, now we know that an idol is nothing. His point being, it doesn't matter. It's just, it's, it's nothing. It's a piece of rock. From our perspective, it means nothing. It has no power. It is of no importance. Sure. He says, nonetheless, don't eat because you don't want to offend the person you're with. But the implication is, if you did eat, it wouldn't be bad. Not intrinsically bad. The implication is, it's only bad because of the fact that you're hurting somebody. Not because there's something intrinsically bad in the thing itself. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul makes the comment that we live according to the spirit, not the letter of the law. And for me, the spirit is everything. And the letter is nothing in this context. If somebody puts up a tree as a celebration to the birth of Christ, I think that's fine, right? I want to know where, though, you're, you're, I want to see some passages. I mean, maybe, maybe you don't have any in mind particularly, but where the, the paganism makes it just evil in and of itself. Because I was assuming... It's actually the first half of the book. So everything he says, right? I, yeah, I'm reading so, it, though, and I'm thinking that the paganism is what makes it idolatrous. That was the way I read it. And maybe there's a passage in it. Well, he does start talking about idolatry later. Um, well, interestingly, in chapter 8, um, in my, my book, chapter 8, uh, it's like the second paragraph sort of. But he says, Mark well, O Christian, how many unclean names have made the circus their own. It is an alien religion, none of thine, possessed by all those spirits and of the devil it to the very name itself um so as i mean as i understand it's part of what tom is part of what tom is saying is like you know and that's after he's gone through uh all of the the different like connections of the pagan gods but even the name itself actually matters um and and so like the circus they think comes from circe uh who was a pagan god so the name the very name is pagan in origin, and merely that fact um, is kind of what makes it inherently bad. Okay, see, yeah. so, but there was other passages, like in chapter 7, where he's talking about these two public games where he's uh, uh, reasoned out their parentage to have a pagan origin. Then he says, they have the same, and they have common names as owning the same parentage, so too as they're equally tainted now with the sin of idolatry. So I that's that was just maybe it was that kind of talk is what made me think that way. But. So so I don't remember exactly where it's at. I have a bunch of passages underlined, but there comes a point at which he says, bottom line is you have a choice to follow God or to enjoy pleasure. Because he says the shows pr- produce pleasure. And every time you make the choice to go to the show, rather than to obey God, you're being idolatrous. So that's where I took his meaning for idolatry is that because you're, you know you're not supposed to, and you do it because you want the pleasure, you elevate the pleasure over God, and that is idolatry. So that's what I took to be his argument for idolatry, as opposed to what Chad just said about the naming. Because he spends a lot of time talking about the names of where different things in, not just the theater, but in the circus and in the gladiatorial games come from, and the different nations involved in worshiping, and then the different rites that were. And I took that to just be a different art, argument, fundamentally. Um, 
Man, I read, yeah, I read it. Yeah, so, um, in chapter 16 and a little bit in 15 is where we get talking about the feelings and the emotions that the games um, sort of conjure up. And his arguments are actually similar to the ones that Augustine will give in his confessions about the, the uh, sort of the problem uh, with going to the games. Um, in, in chapter 8, he says, uh, so it begins and so it goes on, these meaning the games, to madness, anger, discord, to everything forbidden to the priests uh, of peace, next taunts or mutual abuse without any warrant of hate and applause unsupported by affection. Um, and even a little bit further down, they he loss of self-control. Their love is without reason, their hatred without justice. And so the point uh, for in th- this particularly fascinating passage, um, Tertullian, and like I said, and also Augustine will do, um, he's connecting the feelings that we get from these things as saying they aren't warranted because we don't know the people. Um, he says they're without justice. They're without reason. Um, because, you know, if it were someone who we were looking at, someone we were in relationship with, um, and we loved them or we felt sadness for them, it would be justified because we know them, uh, because we have a connection to them. But he's saying these games, they just stir up pure, like what to him would be empty emotion, unconnected uh, from reason. Um, which, you know, which I find fascinating because I don't think he's absolutely an outright denying, uh, that we should ever have affection. It's just for him, it should be affection that's grounded either in a relationship or grounded with, with what he takes to be reason or justice. Yeah. Yeah. And I take this latter argument as one that is more interesting to me, at least in my own everyday life, because, so the argument about paganism, as we've already pointed out, I, I don't mentally connect the analogous events in our world to pagan events. I, like, like Trevor said, a football game, which is violent. Football is a violent sport. Or a wrestling match or a boxing match or MMA. None of that is, in my mind at least, connected to pagan rights. Um, you might be able to loosely connect it like from 2,000 years ago, but I just don't find it very interesting. Um, same thing with television movies, which are connected to theater, but theater honestly has, I mean, it went through a very, basically a Christianization process in the Middle Ages where you had Christian theater being proffered in opposition to um, some of the baser forms of theater that were out there. That's how the play Everyman got written and you know some of that stuff. Um, so theater has gone through many different kind of transformations and permutations. And at the same time, I will say this, if you look back at history, theater has traditionally been on the outskirts uh, from a Christian perspective. Mm-hmm. That is Christians have tended to not be favored conservatives. That is people who are moral conservatives have tended to look at the theater as a place where bad stuff happens. Right. So like Shakespeare, he could not perform within the city of London itself. He had to open his his theater on the outskirts or outside of the city proper. Uh, Same thing with Moliere in Paris. Like you couldn't actually come into the city. Actors actually in France in the Renaissance period would not be allowed to be buried in church land because they were considered um, it was considered so sinful. So there has been kind of this animosity between 
the theater arts and Christians. And part of that is due to its pagan roots, but I think it's more due to these later arguments that he uses, the argument of passion. And I, I in particular want to bring up this point in chapter 17. This is connected with his view about the passions being riled up, which he also says that each one of those passions is kind of a kind of lust. And he says this, all licentiousness of speech, licentiousness is, of course, sinful or bad speech. Nay, every idle word is condemned by God. Why in the same way is it right to look on what it is disgraceful to do? How is it that the things which defile a man in going out of his mouth are not regarded as doing so when they go in his eyes and his ears, when eyes and ears are the immediate attendance on the spirit, and that can never be pure whose servants in waiting are impure? So the basic point he's making is, as Christians, we are called to live pure lives. We are called to avoid certain kinds of speech. We're, not, we're called to, to, to have pure speech. We're called to live with pure action. Specifically, he's thinking sexually. We're not supposed to be out sleeping around and not doing inappropriate sexual things outside of the context of marriage. Um, we're not supposed to be committing violence. And so that having been said... He would say, why is it that we're called not to do these things, but you're okay with watching these things? Like, we can watch a theater, in a, a play, in which there's adultery. We can watch a play in which violence is being committed. We can watch a play in which people are speaking unholy or impure things. Now, that, I think, very clearly, analogously applies to us. Because we watch all sorts of stuff on television and, and in, the, in the movies. We hear every kind of bad word or every kind of coarse language you could possibly hear. We watch every kind of filthy scene. We watch, That is sexually impure scene. We watch the most violent of things. Um, and he's saying, why is it that you can't do it, but it's okay for you to watch it? He says, that doesn't make any sense. And I find that to be a fairly compelling argument. Uh, I, I find that interesting. What do you guys think? I think his his basis, though, I don't know, so maybe I'm misunderstanding, but I think the whole basis of that is because it arouses, merely because it arouses this passionate excitement while viewing it. And like you said in 16, all passionate excitement is forbidden to us. So I think maybe it's, yeah, I think it is just the feelings that it will um, bring out in us that are, that are wrong in and of themselves. I well, he definitely, definitely makes the feeling argument, the passion argument, that it, ar- it arouses bad passions in us, for mm-hmm. sure. But I don't think that's actually – this might actually just be a, an independent argument, an argument oh. all by itself. That, yeah. Because he's saying we're not allowed to do these things. Why should we be allowed to watch them? And I find that – now, just so our audience knows, I am here in a sense arguing with myself because I watch the people who know me. No, I watch a lot of television, and I watch a lot of movies. So just total disclosure here, this is just something I'm wrestling with. And I definitely watch movies that in which the actors or the characters engage in all sorts of behavior that I would not, and I am not okay with. Mm. You know, I'll watch a murder mystery movie. Um, I'll watch movies in which there's cussing. I definitely will watch movies in which there's a sex scene or so every now and again. I mean, I do watch those things. And I think he brings up a really good point. We're not allowed to do these things. Why are we allowed to watch them? Like, you know, I mean, there are passages in the scripture where it says these kinds of things ought not even be mentioned amongst the 
among amongst the believers. So why are we allowed to watch him? Hmm. Thoughts, Chad? Yeah, I mean, I what's yeah, I mean, I don't have a knockdown argument. Um, I spent like I spent three or four months not watching TV. And actually, I, I was surprised by all the things that I saw, and it even changed some of the way that I acted. Um, and, you know, I guess the best explanation I can give for why I watch some things that I shouldn't do is this sort of evangelical or apologetic argument. So I know the culture. Like Paul says he knows the poetry in Acts 19 and the Areopagus at Mars Hill. But Tertullian obviously doesn't agree with that argument. Yeah. I, do you have a thought? Because I have a thought on this. Well, say yours first. Okay. Um, so I, I've been thinking about this, and I find it very interesting. Maybe the most compelling thing about reading these old authors is the arguments they engage in, they haven't changed. They're the exact, like, they're the exact <laughs> arguments that people bring up today. In fact, one of the arguments that's brought up to him is, hey, whatever God makes is good. If it's of God, it's good. And he goes, that's craziness. And that, by the way, is what I always hear about uh, regarding, like, smoking marijuana. People are always like, it's of the earth. God made it. It's good. And Tertullian gives the right response. Tertullian says, just because something exists and in some sense could be traced back to God creating it doesn't mean it's good. Man was created, he points out, but man fell. Man rebelled against God. And so just because a man happens to be created doesn't make him good. Uh, and he goes on and just talks about how, you know, mankind sins. So that isn't good, but we're created by God. Um, you know, and he just kind of follows that logic out. I think he does a really good job handling it. But one of the arguments was that is brought up in this very text is somebody argued with him and told him, look, we see these things in the Bible. We see massacres in the Bible. We read about sex in the Bible. We read coarse language in the Bible. Like, it's there. Why is it that we can read it in this one context and can't in this other? And he says, look, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's something that we ought to look at. So, in other words, the Bible can recount a story without, in some sense, approving it. But with, uh, with that, he kind of falls right into where I would go in terms of my line of reasoning. Um, he's absolutely right. When you read a story in scripture that is really brutal, and there are some really tough ones to get through. Uh, I mean, I'll give this one, and I apologize to our listeners. I won't go into too much detail on it, but this just hints at the brutality we read about in the scripture. It tells the story of a young priest who is traveling through the tribe of Benjamin, stops in this town, and while there, along with his um, with his concubine, his kind of wife he stays with a man and basically a bunch of these guys show up and ask to uh basically send the man out so they can rape him and instead of going out and letting these people rape him they send his wife out and they rape her all night until she dies and then in the morning he finds his wife's dead body Mm -hmm. and he cuts it up into a bunch of different pieces and sends the pieces throughout the land of israel so that they'll get exasperated at what has been done and come and attack this city. So that's a brutal story. I mean, it's like all of the kinds of things that Tertullian is saying we ought not observe in any sense is in that story in spades. Now, granted, it's not being acted out, but it's there. It's in that story. 
And he goes, well, but that's not being told as a moral lesson for you to learn to do this. And I would say, I agree. And I also agree that if something is being presented that's evil and is being presented in a way as to kind of argue for its goodness, I also think that should be observed. But the reality is a lot of the stuff we see, like Chad, what you just referenced, some films about drug use, they're not being put out there as a means of convincing you to become a drug addict. Mm -hmm. They are in fact being brought out as a means of teaching you that art is supposed to be instructive. It's supposed to teach us. And there's a quote here in chapter 22 where he makes this comment. He says, the author of truth, speaking of God, hates all the false. He regards as adultery all that is unreal. Condemning, therefore, as he does hypocrisy in every form, he never will approve any putting on of voice or sex or age. He will never approve pretended loves and wraths and groans and tears. Now here he's basically saying that all acting is lying and God will never approve of any kind of acting because it's a lie. But when I read this, all I could think of was a quote from Pablo Picasso. Now granted, Picasso is not a source of divine revelation, but this quote has always stuck me or struck me. He said, art is a lie that reveals to us the truth. And I have to say that in my life, I have learned much through the arts, whether it be literature, whether it be film, television, theater, things of that nature. I've, I have been moral. I have been shaped because of the argument that goes on in my soul by the art that I've interacted with. And I don't think it's all been bad. I think a lot of it has been good and has aided me in developing my worldview, um, even when done by a non-Christian. No, and what you said when you were saying, say your thought, you said exactly what I was going to say. Um, I was thinking of war movies where war is clearly in the Bible. And I was thinking of the fact that, I mean, w just exposing yourself to the images or to the play acting of war out in front of you. I, no, I don't think it's wrong in and of itself because really the reason we make war movies, at least, all the war movies I've seen, I don't know, maybe there are some, isn't to glorify war at all. It is always the opposite. It is to say, look at this horrible mistake we as nations have made at times by just killing each other. Mm. And normally the message is war is horrible. And wouldn't it be nice if we could avoid this as much as off, as much as we can, you know? And so I, for contemporary movies, I'm not sure that it's always the case. No, I, yeah, I, I'm trying to think. Every war movie, yeah, every war movie I've seen that way. I've been trying to think of a. I, I'm sure there probably are war movies where war is glorified like instead. Huh? I was thinking like Patton or something. I mean, clearly Patton's meant to glorify Patton and that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, that's well. That's, yeah. A lot of people argue that American Sniper glorifies war, and I think that argument can be made if you've seen it. I mean, I don't think it glorifies it in the sense that it makes it. I, I don't think I don't think it over glorifies it in a sense, but American Sniper definitely presents a different take from say the film Saving Private Ryan, right? In Saving For Private sure. Ryan, you walk into the opening scene and you feel the fear of the character. Yeah. And you feel the horror of what he's going through. And it it I mean it leaves you hollow inside. You 
all I could think about as I was watching that scene was I never, ever, ever want to be in that situation. And I was mortified at the thought that any human being had ever had to go through that. Mm -hmm. And it created this intense empathy. When I watched American Sniper, I walked away going, yeah. Like, I mean, I was kind (laughs) of like pumped up and like. See, you know, I, once again, I thought to myself, he had to shoot a child. Yeah, I don't think it's all that way. Freaking there, out! Yeah. Like, why did we? Why is this a job? Yeah, for like a country, like we hire people to do this. Is nuts. Yeah, like, I, I, sh- I, I, I should be know. fair and say that. I mean, I like American Sniper as a film, so I'm not trying to run it down. Right. There are things in American Sniper that made me say, I, I felt the horrors, the shooting, the shooting of the child. I felt the horror of that. So there, that is yeah. there. But I also felt the kind of pumped up, like, Rambo, which, by the way, a classic movie that does inspire you to go fight wars is Rambo. The, the Rambo 2, not the first one, which I think does kind of hit on the horrors of war, but the second Rambo, it makes you feel like you got to get machine guns and go free POWs and, like, it's the greatest thing ever. But I did feel – I felt a lot of that in American Sniper. So I can see why people level that accusation. I don't feel like okay. – yeah. I, I feel like it's it's it, it would be unfair to say that it doesn't express kind of the horror and and tragedy of war because it does, but I feel like also the opposite is there. Maybe that actually makes it more realistic because maybe in reality you do have both, right. you know. So well, and I've also thought of movies. I was thinking of movies where I was like, is there a movie I, I can think of where it shows behavior that we we agree is wrong, but that also was actually trying to make an argument that this behavior is okay. And I can't. I can think of. A, I can think of a couple where basically, like one movie I can think of. Uh, the whole message was basically that casual sex is not a big deal at all, mm-hmm. and just whatever, do sexual acts with whoever you want, whenever you want, because who cares? And love is a different thing. And I remember that movie, but then at the end, I was just morally outraged. I just went, that movie was horrible, and I yeah. just got mad. I didn't think. I don't know. It didn't affect me in the way I think Tertullian thought it should affect me, but it could affect someone else in a negative way. So I don't know how to feel at the end of the day. Well, I definitely have seen art movies that I think very clearly are posing arguments or television shows that are posing arguments that I, uh, for the conclusion that, that something is moral that I myself deem immoral. And what I usually feel is a sense of outrage kind of when I, when I see that. Um, so I, I think it's out there, but usually it's on on issues that are a little more fringe, debatable, right? You never find somebody arguing that murder is okay, yeah, right? It's usually something that it's something that is a lot more of a hot button topic, like abortion or something like that, right? Then you do you do see it. Um, uh, I, I find that a lot, and it's I think interesting to kind of pick up on the arguments. Yeah, I mean, just a couple other points that he makes in here that I thought were interesting. He he doesn't say that Christians aren't supposed to have pleasures or even spectacles. Um, at the end, basically this is the end of the book pretty much, but chapter 29, he says, these are the pleasures, the spectacles of Christians, holy, eternal, and free. Here, find your games of the circus. Watch the race of time, the season slipping by. Count the circuits. Look for the goal of the great consummation. Battle for the companies of the churches. Rise up at the signal of God. Stand erect at the angel's trump. Triumph in the palms of martyrdom. At the, at the very end, he goes on and he says, have you, have you a mind for blood? You have the blood of Christ. Um, 
You know, for him, yeah. what, what I take him to be saying is like, it's sort of like if you spend all your time and all your efforts at these games or, you know, you maybe a lot of people at the game are the lower classes, right? I mean, this is for the masses. Uh, not that there aren't uh, aristocrats there, but a lot of the, a lot of them are, are the masses. And he's saying if you're only if, – if like basically you work when you work and then your time off, you go to this place – to revel in these things that aren't real. Um, there is real, there are real things out there and it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's God. It's the, you know, it's the pleasures, the spectacles of Christians. He says prayer. Um, and then he even says, he says that he has their, they have their own stories. Um, we have sufficiency of books of poems of aphorisms, uh, not fable, but truth which I find to be fascinating again, like he does actually. So like, if you, th- if you think about the literature that we've been bequeathed from antiquity, there are lives of many of the saints, lives of Paul. There are many other acts that we don't know, you know, that, that there are not clearly from the period of when Paul was there, but they were used in instruction. Um, and they were, you know, there were other stories about what Paul did. And, you know, like I said, they're not in scripture, but they were used amongst these communities. So I think there is kind of a literature and there is kind of a of a art for Christians, but the intention should be different. Yeah, and I think here I am definitely rebuked by Tertullian. Even, to be honest, I, I still wrestle with that last point he makes. I mean, I gave an argument against it, but but frankly... I will, until the day I decide to give up movies and television and theater and literature, I will wrestle with the fact that sometimes I watch things that I am totally opposed to in in action. Like I I see something for entertainment that I'm opposed to. Um, And I will wrestle with that. I I gave my argument. I I can expound on it. I don't really feel the need to right now. But at the same time, that – argument is just an argument it's not like it's 100 percent convinced me that i'm right you know what i mean that's this is something i will always wrestle with but what i'm convinced of completely is that my attitude with respect to the spectacles is wrong that i mean you know i was getting ready to go on thanksgiving break and for the most part i was most excited about the fact that i would have a day or two in which i could just sit around and watch television and movies all day and I think Tertullian would be mortified and Tertullian would say, why aren't you excited about the thought of going down to the Boise rescue mission and serving meals or spending time with, you know what I mean? Like he would say, wait a minute, you have free time. Why wouldn't you do that? Doing something that in, in some sense furthers the kingdom of God. Why would you not do that as an opportunity to fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ? Why would you not be excited about getting together and, studying the word and singing hymns and, and, and why wouldn't you be more excited about going out and preaching the gospel or going and helping the homeless or the needy? Why would that not be your focus? Why would your concern be to go and watch a movie? Uh, And the truth is, I mean, I'm well rebuked there. I'm thinking right now I'm reading an essay by David Foster Wallace called E Unum Pluribus, uh, where he addresses the television problem in our culture. And man, I just, every page I am just, I feel about this high. I mean, he, he reveals, he points out something we all know that the average American watches six hours of television a day, six hours 
of television a day. And that and was I, 10 years ago. <laughs> that was 20. Uh, that was, it was, it was, it that, it was yeah, 35 but, years ago. It was 1990. Oh, okay. Uh, so not 35 years, 25 years ago. Um, yeah, it was 1990. Uh, and, the number, I, I, I don't know where he got that number, but I decided to look online today to kind of see contemporary polls. And modern polls have it between five and six hours a day. The mm-hmm. average American adult, wow. five to six hours a day. And, I mean, it's impossible, I, would, I think, for, for somebody, I mean, it would be impossible for somebody like Tertullian to even comprehend what that could mean and like the 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 crazy impact that that has on a culture like ours and the way we do life and uh yeah i mean we that needs to change i I guarantee it's not radically different in the church it's you know it's it's five to six hours a day in the church and that is something that just fundamentally needs to change and i need to do something about that it's not just about watching tv less it's we need a totally new paradigm on how we deal with the spectacle. And and that's what he's talking about, these spectacles. 